You can be opening in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. As many of you as can turn on your video feeds, appreciate it. That way I can see you while I'm teaching. If you can't, I understand that too. But um, we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures tonight as we're going to try to answer eight of our questions uh, this evening. And uh, I think once we answer the first one, you'll see them kind of falling like dominoes because they all are connected to one another. But let's open in prayer and ask for God's blessing upon our time. Our Father, we come before you asking that the Spirit of God will be poured out upon us this evening as we uh, gather around your word to learn together about your truth and about the return of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we do so, I am mindful of our brothers and sisters in the Lord in Tennessee who lost loved ones, uh, whether it be spouses or children, through this horrible shooting that took place in a Christian school. And Father, how some in the world are reacting in such sinful ways uh, to what has happened. Lord, our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters in the Lord and ask that you would be their great comfort uh, in all these matters, that you would help them to remember that even in this situation, Lord, all things work together for the good of those who love Christ in terms of making us more like Christ. But, Father, our, our hearts just weep for our brothers. And we do pray that you will bring glory to yourself through this circumstance. And, Lord, even the things that we're considering tonight, in many ways, they, they are connected to even tragedies like this because we don't weep as those or mourn as those who do not have hope but as people who do have hope. And so I pray that you'll impart that hope to our brothers and sisters in Tennessee and meet with us this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working through the subjects, subject of the end times, end time prophecies, which are as yet unfulfilled. And this is an area of theology known as eschatology. And what we're doing is we've been working through 12 questions that we're asking and seeking to answer. I've actually added two more questions to it, but I'll tell you about that at the very end and what those extra questions are. But thus far, we've answered our first three questions. The first three questions were these. First of all, what are the fundamental truths about eschatology that are non-negotiable if you're to stay within the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith? I'm not going to go over the seven answers that I gave to that, but I spent two Wednesday nights giving those answers. And brothers and sisters, if you get nothing else that I teach you, get those seven fundamentals, okay? It, all the rest of it is one addressing in one sense compared to that. Stay within the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith. And so if you get nothing else from this series, get those things. But then uh, a few weeks ago, I answered questions two and three. Question two is, what are the five different millennial views that are held by Christians who are within the boundaries of fundamental eschatology. And I gave those five answers, which are dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, realized postmillennialism, which is also known as amillennialism. Then there's pietistic postmillennialism, and then theonomic postmillennialism. And then our third question was, which of these five millennial views are inside the boundaries of full subscription to our confession and which ones are outside of it. And basically, the middle three are within the boundaries of our confession. That is, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and pietistic postmillennialism. The two that are outside the boundaries of our confession, not outside the Orthodox Christian faith, but outside of our confession. 
are dispensational premillennialism and theonomic postmillennialism. Now, tonight, my intention is to go through questions four through 11. That is eight questions, eight questions that concern secondary issues of eschatology and to seek to answer them. Now, as I went through the five main views, uh, I sought to show you how each one of those views would answer these eight questions. And I resent that sheet to you yes, uh, this morning by email. So you would have it you know, and have it from you. You might want to have that as a reference. Now, again, just want to put my cards right on the table. I am an all-millennialist. Um, I am a very conservative partial preterist. Uh, I call myself a partial partial preterist. Uh, and hopefully as we go along, you'll figure out what that means. But nonetheless, if you look at the section that asks the question, you know, gives the question and answers to what does an all-millennialist believe, that's what I believe. I'm going to show you why I believe those things this evening. Now, I hope the value will be simply to open you up to the scriptures to help you consider these things. You may not come away convinced of my position. And you know what? That's perfectly okay. It really is. Because so long as we're in the boundaries of fundamental eschatology, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we can have fellowship with one another, and we can agree to disagree over many, many things. But what I want to give you is things that I have personally found extremely helpful, and not just helpful in, in an intellectual sense, helpful in my soul, actually, uh, because it's helped me fix my gaze upon the second coming of Christ in a way that nothing else has before. And that's why I want to share it with you. So what are the questions we're going to answer tonight? Well, it's 4 through 11, which are these. How many peoples of God are there? Question five is, how many returns of Christ will there be? Question six is, the tribulation Jesus speaks of in his Olivet Discourse a past or a future event? Seven, is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day? Or is his second coming going to occur on the last hour of the last day of this present age? Question eight is, how many future bodily resurrections will there be? Question nine, how many future judgments will there be? Question 10, how will humans continue to be born and to die after Jesus' second coming? And the 11th question is, can men continue to be born again after Jesus' second coming? So, fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. How many peoples of God are there? In so many ways, this is such a pivotal question. Because if you remember, why, why are we even asking this question? We're asking this question. Because dispensationalists believe and teach that there are two distinct peoples of God. There's Old Testament Israel, and there's the predominantly Gentile New Testament church. And these are two distinct peoples of God. And indeed, it's because they believe in this distinction of two peoples of God that dispensationalists teach a pre-tribulational rapture and then a separate second coming of Christ seven years later at the end of the tribulation. It's all because of this, 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 this turning of um, God's people into two groups. So far as I know, for the last 2,000 years of New Testament church history, no one else has ever taught that there are two peoples of God or that the return of Christ is divided into two phases except dispensationalists. So this is a very recent thing. It's only in the last 200 years that anyone's ever taught that. The good news is... The Bible, as we're going to see, is by no means silent about this subject whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it's resoundingly clear and giving us an answer to the question, are there one or two peoples of God? 
So let me show this to you from several scriptures tonight. Let's begin with Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read verses 11 through the first part of verse 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here he's saying in verse 12, you were strangers as uncircumcised Gentiles. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, in the original Greek, what he literally says is you were strangers from the covenants of the promise. In other words, covenants that God made that were focused around a singular promise. And I believe that singular promise is the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The promise God would send a redeemer who would come into the world to set us free from sin and the tyranny of Satan. And so the covenants are God unveiling the coming of that promise, the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, The reality is that we were, as Gentiles, we were part of God's covenants with Adam. Because when Adam fell, we fell in him. And then God's covenant with Noah was made not just to Noah and not just to the Jewish people. It was made to every person. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't just made with every person. It was made with all creation, even the creeping things, even the cattle. God made his covenant, uh, promising never to destroy the entire earth with a flood again. So those things were peculiar to us. But then God made his covenant with Abraham And then he made a covenant through Moses, and then he made a covenant through David. And those covenants were covenants of the promise, but you and I as Gentiles were excluded from them because those were only for Jews. And under the old covenant, God erected a temporary wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. His purpose was to preserve the Jews until the time that Jesus came until the Messiah came, to keep them separate from the influences, the corrupt influences of the surrounding pagan world. And so that wall was made up of kosher regulations, circumcision, uh, kosher diets that you had to observe, the observance of uniquely kosher days on the Jewish calendar that were observed every single year. Those things excluded the Gentile world from what God was doing with Israel. Um, If you had lived in the first century A.D., The very architecture of the temple in Jerusalem signified this wall of separation because there were various courts built around the temple proper. And the outermost court was called the court of the Gentiles. That was where the Gentiles came to worship the God of the Hebrews. But there was a wall about waist high or so that surrounded uh, that area that separated the court of the Gentiles from all the other inner courts. And archaeologists have actually found a sign that was posted on one of the entrances to that gate that says, if a Gentile enters into this gate, passes through this fence, he does so at peril of his own life. In other words, we will cut you down, we will kill you if you come through this gate. That's how serious they were about this wall of separation. So it was almost like the architecture itself symbolized this kosher wall of separation. But these kosher... Uh, laws were all a part of what we call the ceremonial law. They were positive laws as opposed to moral laws. Moral laws are things that are binding upon all peoples and all places at all times, namely the Ten Commandments. Positive laws are temporary laws. 
They are connected to specific covenants. And so long as that's, that covenant is in force, so are the positive laws. But as soon as that covenant is uh, taken away, then those positive laws are no longer binding anymore. They perish with the covenant. When Jesus died upon the cross, he abolished the old covenant in its entirety. And all of those positive laws, the kosher requirements for circumcision and kosher days and kosher diets, all that stuff, all that stuff came down. And that's what Paul says next. You're in Ephesians 2, look at the latter part of verse 13. But now, you hear that? You were strangers to the covenants of promise, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. What's he mean, both? He means Jew and Gentile, who are two separate peoples. He has made one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, God, there's no, there's not two separate people here anymore. Jesus has made us one. He's not just reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to one another so that Jew and Gentile who believe on Jesus are only one people of God. And now he's building us into a temple, not a physical temple like the temple of Solomon was, but instead a spiritual temple, a living temple, where every single person who is added to that edifice is a living stone, but one temple, one people of God. So according to Ephesians chapter 2, how many peoples of God are there? There are not two. There is only one. There's one people of God, and this was God's intention from the very beginning. The statement I'm about to make has got me in trouble in the past. Um, but it's an accurate statement because it's exactly what Ephesians 2 is saying. And this is the statement. Dispensationalism has spilled a lot of ink to keep God's people separate. Jesus Christ spilled his blood to make us one. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's exactly what Ephesians 2 is telling us. And this is borne out in numerous places in the New Testament. Let's consider a few other places. Romans chapter 2. Verses 25 to 29. This is actually my text for this coming Lord's Day. Um, but listen to what Paul says. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, Judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, 
not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, notice, first of all, Paul is making a distinction between the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and the positive law of circumcision. That's how he can say that an uncircumcised man can fulfill the law, because he's making a distinction between the law. He's not obeying the circumcisional law, but he is obeying the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. But notice what he's saying here. He's not a Jew who's one physically, nor is a man really truly circumcised who is circumcised bodily. But rather, he is a Jew who's one inwardly, a spiritual Jew, and circumcision is that of the heart. Circumcision is a symbol of being regenerated by God's Spirit. It's a symbol of being born again. The New Testament re refers to it as spiritual baptism, being baptized in my soul, as it were. So that's what it's about. Now, but I want you to think through this then. What does this mean? It means there's four kinds of people in the world. There are physical Jews who are also spiritual Jews. They were circumcised in their body, and they were circumcised in their hearts. So they are sons of Abraham, both physically and spiritually. Secondly, there are physical Jews who are not spiritual Jews. They're physically circumcised, but they're not circumcised in their hearts. So they are Abraham's sons physically, but not Abraham's sons spiritually. And then there are physical Gentiles who are not spiritual Jews. They're neither physical Jews, nor are they spiritual Jews. They're not circumcised in body, and they're not circumcised in heart. But then there's the fourth category, and the fourth category is us. Fourth category is there are physical Gentiles who are spiritual Jews, men who've not been circumcised in their bodies, but have been circumcised in their hearts. So spiritual Jews make up the church, make up the one people of God, and the one people of God are made up of uncircumcised Gentiles and circumcised Jews, both of whom have believed on Christ, both of whom have been circumcised in their hearts. That's what the text is saying. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Paul's reiterating the same thought that he just, just put forth in Romans 2. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, what's going on in this passage? Paul's reminding us of something. Abraham had two sons. The first one was Ishmael, and the second was Isaac. But even though both of them were his physical sons, were both of them his spiritual sons? And the answer is no. Isaac was the son of promise, and he was born again by God's spirit. He was not only Abraham's physical son, he was also his spiritual son. However, Ishmael was a reprobate. So Ishmael, even though he was the physical son of Abraham, was not his spiritual son. And then Isaac, when he grew up, his, through his wife, Rebekah, he had two sons, twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And yet, even though these two boys were the sons of 
Isaac, to whom the promise was made. Jacob was his spiritual son. Esau was not. Esau was a reprobate. So the point being, in these various generations, just because you were born a physical descendant of Abraham did not mean you were part of God's people. And this should tell us something, by the way, among our Pado-Baptist friends who say that their children are the heirs of the covenant of grace because they're born in their home. Well, according to the scriptures, you don't become an heir of the covenant of grace simply by being born to Christian parents. You must be born again by God's Holy Spirit. That's the only way you can become an heir of the covenant of grace. But the point that we're getting at here is we are spiritual Jews who belong to a spiritual Israel. We belong to the one people of God. So over and over and over again, what is the scriptures telling us? It's telling us there's only one people of God. One more text uh, under this heading, and then we'll go to our next question. And that is John 10, verses 15 to 16. This is the great uh, passage where Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. It says in verse 15, as the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, if you look at the surrounding context, the sheep are God's elect. Those whom the father gave to the son, those are the sheep. Jesus says, I lay down my life for those that the father gave me. In other words, this is a very strong passage that's teaching limited atonement. Teaching a particular redemption that Jesus shed his blood for his elect people. Notice then verse 16, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. What's he mean when he says they are people of the other folds? This fold is Israel. This is the nation of Israel. But I have other elect who are not a part of Israel. They're part of the surrounding nations. But them, I'm going to regenerate them. I'm going to redeem them. And then they're going to be one flock under one shepherd. This is talking about world missions. This is talking about the gospel going forth to unreached language and people groups so that men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation are going to be saved. But when he does that, is he going to keep them as some separate people? No, Jesus says, I will bring them together and all these various nations, they'll be one flock under one shepherd. So I believe we can authoritatively and dogmatically say there's only one people of God. And we can multiply more texts than the ones I've shown you. In other words, if you say there's only one people of God, then you have completely rejected all forms of dispensationalism by that one statement. Okay? So if you wrestle with where you are eschatologically, you've just had a big piece answered for you. That if you believe there's one people of God only, then you have rejected dispensationalism. You know at least what you're not. Well, that moves us then to the next question, which is how many returns of Christ will there be? Again, it's only the dispensationalist who divides the second coming of Christ into two phases. A secret, secret stealthy, pre-tribulational rapture in which the church is raptured out. And then seven years later, you have a post-tribulational visible second coming of Jesus. The question is, are those two separate events or are they one and the same? Well, obviously, I'm going to say they're one and the same. And I'll show you why. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. I told you we were going to be looking at a lot of scripture tonight. But for the dispensationalist, this is the classic text on the rapture, a secret stealthy rapture in which only the, the God's people hear 
the voice of God, they ascend into heaven and go back into heaven and the tribulation begins. Well, let's read it. Second Thessalonians, first, I'm sorry, did I say second Thessalonians? First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now notice carefully this next verse. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I want to, you can nod your heads or, or, or whatever or shake your heads, but I'm going to ask you a basic question. Is there anything in what I just read that would make you conclude that this is a secret stealthy event that nobody else sees but God's people. As a matter of fact, look again at verse 16. It's been called the loudest verse in the entire New Testament. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a whisper. No, with a shout. And with a voice of the archangel. So you got two people shouting, Christ himself and the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. If you turn this into a super secret stealthy rapture, then what you have is Jesus and the archangel whispering, descending with a whisper, and somehow you turn the trumpet of God into a dog whistle that only God's people can hear. There is absolutely nothing in the passage that, that supports that kind of thinking. As a matter of fact, are we really supposed to believe that millions of Christians are popping up out of the graves? And then we who are alive and remain are caught up into the air, and somehow the rest of the world doesn't notice this is going on. All of these things are visible. All these things can be heard, and scripture after scripture supports that. Um, this is the same visible return that the angels prophesied would happen in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles were watching Jesus ascend. Do you see him leaving into the clouds? He's going to return in the same way that he left visibly and literally, and you're going to see it, and you're going to hear it. Another text that's often appealed to for the rapture is Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne." The language that dispensationalists use is they claim that when John was called up into heaven, he symbolizes the entire church. And this is supposed to be a symbol of the entire church being raptured before the tribulation begins uh, that's spoken of in the rest of the book of the Revelation. Well, again, it's really bizarre that brothers who claim they take their Bibles literally read this into this account because there's nothing in this account whatsoever that hints that John symbolizes anything but John. John was on the island of Patmos, and what he's saying is, is I was caught up into heaven to see these visions of these great and mighty things, but he doesn't say that anybody else went with him, or that he symbolizes something greater than himself. It's simply that John himself was transported to see these things in heaven. So there's, it's really stretching things and reading things into the text to say that this symbolizes the church. 
don't have the time to prove it, but another big part of this argument is uh, for dispensationalists is Daniel chapter 9, where Paul, where Daniel talks about the 70 weeks, which are 70 uh, sets of seven years each. And if you know anything about that prophecy, you'll know that they say that between the 69th week and the 70th week, there's a big pause. As a matter of fact, a pause that's almost 2,000 years and growing. Well, again, that is an artificial imposition of the text. There's nothing in the text itself that suggests anything should be paused. If you're curious about what I personally believe about it, I won't take the time here to expound it. But I just a year ago finished preaching a series on Daniel. It's on Sermon Audio. You can listen to Daniel chapter 9 and, you'll, and uh, you can at least hear what my, my take on it. But there's nothing that tells me I'm supposed to put a gap into that in between those two weeks. That's an artificial imposition on the text of scripture that the scriptures themselves never put there. So returning to the question, how many returns of Christ will there be? I conclude that there's only one. Things begin to fall into place really quickly from here. These next questions begin to run together and you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? Uh, I hope it makes sense to you. So our sixth question is this. Is the tribulation that Jesus speaks of in his Olivet Discourse a past or a future event? Again, I can only touch the surface here. After I finished preaching on Daniel, I'm not trying to advertise my own product, I promise. But after I finished preaching on Daniel, I did a seven-part series on the Olivet Discourse last spring and summer. So if you want to listen to Sermon Audio and hear at least my understanding and my interpretation of that text, you can. I hope it'll be in comfort to you and encouragement. But let me summarize it here. The all the discourse, which is given for us in Matthew 24 and 25, it's in, repeated again in Mark 13, is also in Luke 21. Um, basically, the entire sermon is Jesus answering three questions that the apostles uh, had posed to him. Matthew 24, verses 1 to 3, says this. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So you get what's going on. They're in the temple in Jerusalem. They're pointing out the architecture of these various buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he's just said the temple that you see in the temple build structure is going to be destroyed. And then he it says this, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and as you look at, surround, at the parallel text, he's literally sitting on the Mount of Olives, and you can see in the center of his vision, right there is the temple. And it, says, and, and it says this, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, now listen to three questions, when will these things be? What things? When will the temple be torn down? Second question, what will be the sign of your coming? Third question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, it seems that the apostles thought all three of those things were going to happen at the same time. What Jesus is doing is clarifying that, well, one event's going to take place one, at one point, and these other events at another. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem isn't going to be when I return, nor is it going to be the end of the age. So here's his answers. When it comes to the question, when will these things be? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus gives his answer in Matthew 24, verse 23. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. He said that in 30 AD, 
70 AD, just 40 years later, the temple was destroyed. Then his answer to the question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He gives that in Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So that's not going to take place at the same time as the destruction of Jerusalem. Maybe maybe a year after it, maybe 2,000 years after it, but it's unknowable. But you see what he's doing here. But when he talks about the Great Tribulation, it's very clear that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Because he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that is the Roman armies, which was exactly what happened in 70 AD, then as soon as you see them, don't go back and get anything that's in your your house. Run. Don't just get out of Jerusalem. Get out of the region of Judea. Well, doesn't that tell you that the tribulation that's about to take place is a localized tribulation because you can find escape from it by going into the surrounding regions? In other words, let's put it very simply this way. Five things about Jesus' teaching. I should put this in your notes. When it comes to the tribulation, Jesus is answering a very specific question about a very specific event, namely the destruction of Jerusalem, that would happen to a very specific people, the Jews, in a, at a very specific time, within your generation, in a very specific place, Jerusalem. So I conclude then that the tribulation spoken of there is a past event. That does not mean that I'm denying that there's a future Antichrist who will rise up, a man of sin who will rise up just before Jesus comes back, and that he will lead the world in a global worldwide persecution. I do believe that. I do believe that's what the scriptures are teaching. But it means that the tribulation of the all the discourse is not a future event for us. It's a past event for us. So uh, let's move on then to our next question. And to me, this is, gets exciting. The next questions we're going to ask. Is Jesus going to return 1,000 years before the last hour of the last day? Or is his second coming going to occur on the last hour of the last day of this present age? Remember that for the premillennialists, the reason they're called premillennialists is because they believe Jesus will return a a thousand years before this age ends to usher in a golden era of peace in which he physically rules on the earth. So in premillennialism, Jesus' return is not the end of this present age. It's not the end of this present world. It's the end, it's the beginning of the final era of this present age, but it's not on the last hour of the last day. All three varieties of postmillennialism, remember, amillennialism is just another form of postmillennialism. All three of them believe that Jesus' second coming takes place at the end of the millennium, whatever each school of theology believes the millennium is. But it's post-mill because it's after the millennium. So here's the question. What sayeth the scriptures? Do the scriptures give us an answer as to when Jesus comes back? It tells us we can't know the day and hour he's going to return. We know that. But whatever hour, day and hour he does return, what is it? Is it a thousand years before the last hour of the last day, or is it the last hour of the last day? Matthew 13, verses 36 to 43. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember the parable? An enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat, uh, and so they grow up side by side. And the, the laborers come to the farmer and say, an, an enemy has done this. They sowed this, these tares in with the wheat. Should we tear them up, Lord? 
And he says, no, lest you tear up the good wheat while you're trying to get rid of the tares. And then the apostles come along and they ask for an explanation, explain to us the meaning of this parable. So he gives that explanation in verses 36 to 43 of Matthew 13. Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the, the now listen to this, what, what's he say? The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you hear what he's saying here? What's he referring to? Is he not referring to the second coming of Christ? And when he comes, what happens? Those who are outside of Christ, the sons of the devil, they are cast into the lake of fire. But those who are the sons of God, those who by the grace of adoption have become God's sons, they shine forth as, a, as the sun in the Father's kingdom. That is, they're glorified, and they live in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, in the new earth. But when does Jesus say this event is going to take place? Two different times in the text, he says, at the end of the age, and not 1,000 years before the end of the age. Last hour of the last day. Okay? Look down a few more verses into Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50. Jesus tells another parable. And this one is about the dragnet. It brings in two kinds of fish, good fish and bad fish. And what I'm going to tell you before I even read this is this parable is the same parable we've just read. It's just, it's the same meaning, just told in a different way. It's, it's like when Pharaoh had his two dreams. He had the dream about the seven fat cows followed by the seven gaunt cows and then he had a second dream and it had seven good stalks of wheat followed by seven bad stalks of wheat remember what joseph told him he says the dreams are one both dreams are the same thing it's just said in a different way that's what these parables are so look at verses 47 to 50 matthew 13 again the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind which when it was full they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be, listen to Jesus' words, at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. When does Jesus say this is going to happen? He says at the end of the age. Second Peter 3, verses 3 to 13. I'm not going to read the entirety of this passage because I brought it before you just a few weeks ago. Do you remember what this is? Peter says, in the last time, scoffers will come and say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the beginning of the world, everything continues as it always has. In other words, they're mocking that Jesus is ever going to come back. And so Peter says they forget this. They forget that God's already destroyed the world once. And basically, what he sets before you, if you're going to draw it in your notes, you could draw three circles. In the first circle, you could put the world that was. The second circle, you could put the world that is. And the third circle is the world that is yet to come. So the world that was is the world that existed from Adam until Noah. 
the antediluvian world, we call it. What is the, what's the thing that separates the world that was from the world that is? It's the flood. God destroyed the earth with a flood. And so we are now living in the world that is. But in the future, there's going to be a destruction of this present age, and God is going to introduce the new heavens and the new earth, the world that is to come. But what is the thing that separates this present age from the world that is to come? You'll notice that in verse 12, it is described as the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Verse 4 describes the same day of God as, quote, the promise of his coming. In other words, the point being, according to Peter, just as the destruction of the world under Noah in the, with the flood separated the world that was from the world that is, even so, the coming of Christ in the future called the day of the Lord will separate this present age from the age that is to come. In other words, Jesus' coming is at the last hour of the last day of this present age. It's the end of this present age, the beginning of the age that is to come. So what have we seen thus far? There's only one people of God who will be caught up in the air at the one and only second coming of Jesus Christ, which will take place at the last hour of the last day of this present age. That then lets it, leads us to our next two questions, which I'm going to answer together. How many future bodily resurrections will there be? How many future judgments will there be? Now, the reason this is important is for the dispensational premillennialists, there's three separate resurrections and there are three separate judgments. There's one resurrection at the pre-tribulational rapture and the judgment of the saints takes place then. Seven years later, Jesus returns visibly his second coming. There's a second resurrection at that point, and the judgment of the nations takes place. He inaugurates the millennium a thousand years past, and then there's a third and a final resurrection and the final judgment at the great white throne of Christ. So in the dispensationalist scheme, there are three resurrections and three judgments. If you are a historic premillennialist, you agree with us then that there, the rapture and the second coming are one and the same thing. They both take place in, in historic premillennialism at the end of the tribulation, but before the millennium. But for the historic premillennialists, there are two resurrections and two judgments. A resurrection before the millennium and a judgment then. A thousand years pass, and there's a second resurrection, and there's a second judgment. So, Again, what do the scriptures say? Do the scriptures teach that there are separate judgments and separate resurrections? Daniel 12, verses 2 to 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine forth like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. The way the language is there sounds like there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust all at the same time. And they're ushered into their eternal state. Have you ever noticed how Daniel 12 ends, how the whole book of Daniel ends? It's such a sweet, sweet way to end. He says to Daniel, but you, you singular, go your way to the end, for you shall rest. You're going to die before this all happens. You're going to go to your rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. You're going to die in peace. Your soul is going to go to heaven while your body sleeps in the ground. And then at the last day, what's going to happen? You're going to be raised. 
there to enjoy your inheritance forever. But when are you going to be raised, according to that text, at the end of days, he says. Well, turn to John 11 then. Do you know the context of John 11? What's John 11 talking about? It's talking about the resurrection of Lazarus, right? Lazarus had died. Verses 23 to 24, Jesus is speaking to Lazarus' sister, Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, we know what he meant. We meant he's going to rise again before this day is over. I'm going to go to his tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth, and he's going to rise again. But Martha didn't understand what he meant at first. And she says to him, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of what? The last day. Apparently, she interpreted Daniel 12 as speaking of the resurrection that takes place at the end of time, the last day of this present age. Jesus is saying, well, he's going to, yeah, he's going to raise then, but he's going to rise today before this day is over. But the point is, see what her mindset was. At the end of time, based on what I understand of Old Testament scripture, there's going to be a resurrection on the final day of human history. Well, then turn with me to John 5. The case gets even more compelling. John 5, 25 to 30. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming. And now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment, judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now look at what he says next. Do not marvel at this, for the hour, do you hear that? Singular. The hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can't of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Do you see that what Jesus is saying is parallel to what Paul would later, later write in 1 Thessalonians 4? You'll hear the voice of the Son of God when he comes, descends with a shout, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. But what he's saying here is it's not just the dead in Christ who will rise, it's the dead outside of Christ who will rise. Some will be, all will be raised who are in the grave. All, everybody who's in the graves will, at that moment, in that hour, hear the voice of the Son of Man. And some will be raised to a resurrection of uh, life and others to a resurrection of condemnation. Doesn't that clearly imply that the resurrection and the final judgment all take place at the same time? And one more text here is Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, verses 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, again, doesn't that sound like 1 Thessalonians 4? When he descends from the shout and the holy angels are with him and the souls of those who sleep in Jesus he brings with him. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Skip down to verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What do you have? You have one resurrection, one judgment. Not two judgments, not three judgments, not three or four resurrections. One general resurrection one general judgment. Put it all together. There's one people of God. 
There's going to be one second coming of Jesus Christ. It takes place on the last hour of the last day. There'll be one general resurrection of all who've died, one general judgment, and it issues in the eternal state. Neither heaven or hell. That means our next two questions are really easy to answer. Will humans continue to be born and to die after Jesus' second coming? In, in all forms of premillennialism, um, humans continue to be born and die during the tribulation and then during the millennium. But if you believe, if we're right in saying that Jesus' return takes place at the last hour, the last day of this present age, there will be no more births after Jesus comes. All who are ever going to be born on earth will have been born. There also will be no funerals, no more deaths. Why? Because the last enemy Jesus will abolish is death. And he'll do it by raising people from the dead. So will people continue to be born and die after Jesus' second coming? No. And that leads us to a very important question then. It's question 11 there. Can men continue to be born again after Jesus' second coming? Can you still be saved? In the dispensational scheme, I've been left behind. I missed the rapture, but I can be saved now. And then you can apparently be saved after the second coming during the millennium. So you have a thousand years there in order a chance to be saved. But when you look at the scriptures, do the scriptures offer any such hope that once Jesus comes back, you can still be saved after he has returned? And on this point, the scriptures are very emphatic. No, you cannot be saved after Jesus comes back. Several scriptures, and then we'll make some application. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. This is right after the passage we saw earlier. 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about the return of Christ in the air. goes on to say, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is the return of Christ, coming in the clouds with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God that he just described in chapter 4. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. By the way, notice the thief in the night thing. So often that's used to say the thief in the night, Jesus comes by stealth. No, 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 that's that's not what it means. The thief breaks into your house. You're not expecting him to come. But when he comes in the middle of the night, once he's in your house, you know he's there. It's no longer stealthy once he shows up. He comes unexpectedly. That's the point of the analogy of the thief in the night. It's not that he comes in and leaves without you knowing. Once he breaks into your house, everybody in the house knows there's a thief in the house. And that's what it's saying here. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Do you hear that? You hear what he's saying? There's no chance to be find mercy with God once Jesus has come back. That day is over. That day is past. Then it says, uh, he says this, they shall not escape, but here's the comfort for us who are in Christ. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now notice what he says next. This is glorious. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear what that is? You know what that doctrine is? Election. 
God ordained you for eternal life. He decreed it from all of eternity. That's why you're going to escape from the wrath that is to come. He ordained that you should attain salvation through Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says next. Who died for us? Who is us in the context? Us is those whom God appointed for salvation. So he's saying the doctrine of election, in particular redemption, are your hope that you're going to escape from the judgment that is to come. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. But according to this text, when Jesus comes back, can anybody be saved that wasn't saved before? The answer is no. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 10 says the same thing. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Your faith in Christ, your love for the saints, these are the evidences you've been born again, is what he's saying. And we rejoice in this, and you're being persecuted by your surrounding village, by the world there. You're suffering persecution from the world. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Now listen carefully what he says. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you her troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So again, is there any idea of separate judgments, separate resurrections, one general judgment, one general resurrection? Matthew 24, this is the final text I'll look at and then we'll make some applications. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 39. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, speaking of Christ's second coming. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For at least 120 years, while Noah was building the ark, the Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. He was calling the surrounding world to repent. God is going to destroy the world. He's going to destroy it with a flood. You have only a limited time to seek him and find mercy with him because there is room in our ark for you. But the people mocked him. They didn't believe him. They thought he was a madman, thought he was a religious fanatic. They didn't listen. And so the day of their destruction dawned. And people went about their same business. It, as far as they were concerned, whatever day it was, it was a Thursday. Well, there's 52 of them on the calendar every year. This is just another one of them. They went about doing their same stuff, cleaning their houses, going to places of business. There were wedding ceremonies taking place, bride and grooms getting together and, and uh, being wed in holy matrimony. They thought the rest of everything else is going to be just like it always has been. They didn't know that the day of wrath that had been they've been warned about had finally come upon them. And if you remember, God specifically gave a command to Moses, get in. Take your family, get into the ark. He got into the ark, and you remember what the Bible says? God himself shut the door. 
so that nobody could get out. Nobody else could get in. It was too late. And then the flood came. And Jesus said it carried them all away. If they beat against the door of the ark. Okay, please let us in. It was too late. It was too late to repent. It was too late to obtain mercy from God. His patience was at an end. And they were carried away into destruction. And Jesus says the day of my second coming is going to be just like that. I'm going to come when, in an hour when no one expects me. And it's going to be too late to obtain mercy. I came the first time to be the savior of the world. I'm coming the second time to be the judge of the world. And it's too late to obtain mercy. Now, we have three more questions to go. I've added two questions to this. Because I think it would be doing you a disservice if I didn't at least touch upon the subject of the book of the Revelation. How are we to understand that book? Because I'm sure you got questions about that. Frankly, I've got questions about that too. And after I teach you the answers to these questions, I'm still going to have questions. Because uh, it, it's a difficult book. My, I think the most profound thing ever said about the book of the Revelation was said by John Calvin. John Calvin wrote commentaries on almost every single book of the Bible, but he did not write one on the Revelation. And someone asked him, why did you never write one on the Revelation? His answer was, and I quote, I do not understand it, end of quote. Perhaps the most profound thing ever said about the Revelation. But what are our three questions? Question number 12 is going to be, what is the relevance of the Revelation to Christians today? What's its relevance? So before I even get into the views, I want to give you some what I hope will be warm, encouraging applications. I'm going to try to answer that question over uh, two Wednesday nights, April 12th and April 19th. And I hope you'll be encouraged by it. Then I want to come back on April the 26th and answer our final two questions, which are these. What are the four different views of the revelation held by Orthodox Christians? And then I want to have our final question be, what is the nature of the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 15? But that's not quite the end. There's going to be one more thing. After that Wednesday night, the very next Lord's Day, April the 30th, I intend to finish our series on the confession on that Sunday morning. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not going to preach from the confession. I believe it would be erroneous uh, to preach from the confession on a Lord's Day worship service. It's fine to do that in Sunday school or on a Wednesday night. I'm going to preach the scriptures to you. I'm going to preach from 1 Thessalonians 4, but I'm going to use my as my title the very last words of our confession. Have you ever noticed how our confession ends? It says, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. And I'm going to preach from 1 Thessalonians 4 about the second coming of Christ. And I believe that's the perfect way to end our study of the confession. It's been going on for three years now. It will have been 86 messages by the time it's said and done. But when men in the future listen to it, I want them to end with their gaze fixed upon the glorious hope of Christ's second coming. So that's where we're headed. So by the end of April, God willing, we'll finish this series. For tonight, I want to make two applications. Number one, the eschatology of the Bible is basically simple. Don't mean there aren't complexities and hard things to grasp and understand. There are. But for so many years, I've told you in the past, I was baffled about eschatology in the Bible. The reason I was baffled about it was because of dispensationalism that I've been taught all my life growing up in church. Um, I had become, by the time I went into Bible college, and, and I graduated Bible college still not knowing where I was in this in, in about eschatology. 
But I had become so disillusioned with the repeated failures of dispensationalism that it seemed every new week they were scanning the, uh, the, the recent headlines in the newspaper and trying to fit biblical prophecy into it. And it fell time and time and time again. And after a while, you just get sick of it. And you say, you know what? You fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And I was going, whatever this is, I, this can't be right. And I had this feeling that I was supposed to take my dispensational end times chart, staple it to the maps in the back of my Bible, and pull it out every time I'm reading a text about the second coming of Christ. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to insert a gap and a hole and a pause in this part and that part. And after a while, you're just going, but the text doesn't say those things. This is artificial. This is imposing things into the text. And then 19 years ago, I read Sam Waldron's book, The End Times Made Simple. And I was so skeptical of the title, End Times Made Simple, really? Actually, he didn't choose the title. It was his publisher that did. He didn't like it. But nonetheless, I, I was skeptical at first, but I was amazed that it actually did help me. And basically, Waldron showed me the things I've shown you tonight. There's only one people of God. There's only one second coming of Christ that takes place on the last hour of the last day of this present age. There's going to be one general resurrection followed by a general judgment of all men that ushers in the eternal state in either heaven or hell. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Doesn't that simplify things? And I believe that's completely scriptural. And now I can read those same texts of scripture and take them at face value. But it's not just an intellectual exercise. I feel like dispensationalism kept me from seeing the glorious hope of Christ's second coming. Because all, for all of its emphasis on eschatology, it doesn't really focus your attention upon the second coming of Christ. It's conspiracy theories about who the Antichrist might be or who, how this thing might be fulfilled in Russia or somewhere else, or maybe the president that's going to be elected in 2024 is the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff. It focused you upon the era before Christ's return, not Christ's return itself. And that's a shame because the end, at the end of, the, end of all of it, what we're supposed to get the gaze of our soul on is the, the hope that's before us. And if we have our gaze fixed upon the hope that's for us, first of all, it stirs up holy affections in your own soul. But furthermore, it gives you hope that helps you to endure through hardship and tribulation and persecution. And if you obscure that, that glorious hope, then you're not as helped going through all those things. And so this took away the fetters for me. So this isn't just an intellectual exercise for me. It's something that really has produced holy affections in me over the years. There's an old Pat Terry song from the 70s that really says it so wonderfully well. And I feel like I can kind of live the chorus of this now. It says this, tell me how it's going to be. Read it from the Bible again. I can't wait to see Jesus because Jesus is coming again. And that's how simple this really is. So for me, this has not been just an, an intellectual exercise. It's been something that's been profitable to my soul. But let me end on the most important point. If you take nothing else away, take this away. Flee from the wrath that is to come before it's too late. Isn't that the summation of what we've seen tonight? About 15 years ago, when I was still bivocational, I was working as a carpenter, uh, building a small house, uh, framing a small house just a few miles from my house, from the place I live right now. And there was a bunch of 
uh, teenage guys and, and some 20-somethings that were working alongside of me. They all went to a Southern Baptist church, so they were steeped in dispensationalism, just like I had been when I was younger. And there was some stupid horror movie that had come out uh, about that made the Antichrist its protagonist. Um, I have never seen it. I don't do horror movies, but uh, these guys had gone, some of these guys had gone to see it. <clears throat> and of course, you can imagine how uh, just absolutely out there all this stuff was. But they were talking about this and asking if that's really how things were. They knew I was a pastor, so they looked at me and said, what do you believe about the end times? Well, I knew they were coming from dispensationalism. I was not this by that point. I knew what I was and that what I was believed, they would be so strange to their thinking, they would never even be able to comprehend it. So basically, I just looked at them and said, we were on break. I said, you don't want to know. But I did share a little bit. I basically just said this. Well, I don't believe in a secret, stealthy, pre-tribulational rapture. I believe that when Jesus comes back, it's the, he's coming back on the last hour of the last day of this present age. The judgment will take place, and he will usher in the eternal state. What struck me about that comment was no sooner had I said it than one of these young men immediately said to me, he got it. He said, so you don't believe that sinners can be converted after Jesus comes back, do you? And I said, no, I don't. And I don't know what was going on in this man's heart, but I got the distinct impression that he was holding out hope that if he wasn't truly converted after Jesus came, maybe he could get saved. Because that's what all the in in uh, in times things teach us. And it makes me wonder, are there more people like that in the world? And I don't know, but my suspicion is that there are. And I'll tell you why. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells parable after parable after parable, warning about people who say the master has tarried his coming. And what do they do? They presume. They're unprepared for his coming. They're not equipped for his coming. The parable of the foolish virgins who don't have oil for their lamps, and suddenly the master comes at a time they're not expecting, and they're cast out into utter darkness, and they knock on the door, they beat on the door, just like the people would beat on the door of the ark. Master, master, let us in. And he says, depart, I, don't, I never knew you. What's it telling us? It's saying people who postpone things because they think, the master isn't coming for a long time, but then he comes sooner than they ever expected at a time they weren't expecting, and they're not prepared for him. Here's what I'm saying to you. We're not promised tomorrow. What if you die before this day is over? Your body's buried in the ground, and your soul stands before God. Are you prepared for that? Have you received the forgiveness of sins that you can only find through faith in Jesus? Have you been dressed in the righteousness of Christ, or, or are you going to stand before him naked and ashamed, unprepared to meet him? Or what if he returns in the next week or the next month or the next year? Are you ready to receive him? Are you ready to meet him? Are you dressed in his perfect righteousness that only he can give? Or are you trusting your own righteousness to save you? Are you postponing things because you think, well, I've got time? What are these texts telling us but warn you Seek the Lord while he may be found, because the time's coming when it's going to be too late. And I would hate to stand on the, th at the throne of Christ and hear him say to you, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels, because you weren't prepared. Of all the questions that you need to have answered in your life, the one that's most important is this, what must you do to be saved? 
And of all the things that we invest our time in, the most important issue is that you find mercy with your judge. And you've got to find that mercy in this present age because it's too late to find it in the age that is to come. If the scriptures are explicit about anything, they're explicit about that. What they tell us is this, time is short and hell is hot. But the good news is your judge is a savior. He's the only savior of sinners, and he loves to save sinners. Heaven rejoices. It rejoices when just one sinner repents. Jesus came to shed his blood, not for righteous people who got their lives all together. He came to shed his blood for rebels, for self-willed people, for blasphemers, for adulterers, for fornicators, for homosexuals, for drunkards, for all kinds of sinners. Jesus shed his blood for sinners. He didn't come to save righteous people. He came to save wicked sinners like you and me. So come to him because he has pardon in his hands. He has pity in his heart. He's able to save. The Bible says he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. The very best promises in all the Bible are this. Jesus receives sinners. There is no greater promise than that. And it doesn't say Jesus receives elect people. It says he receives sinners. You don't have to know if you're elect or not. All you got to know is you're a sinner and he's the savior and come to him because he can save sinners. He saved this sinner. He saved a number of the sinners who are gathered here tonight. He can save you. So seek him while he may be found. Seek him and find mercy before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that your spirit would be poured out upon, uh, especially, Lord, our children, our children who've not yet closed with Christ. Please have mercy upon them, but also upon young people and adults who may not be, not be in Christ. Have mercy upon them. And for us who are in Christ, Lord, would you please comfort us with the joy of the future second coming of Christ? Help us to fix our gaze upon it in a way that we haven't before, because it's so relevant to how we live today and tomorrow and the next day. We ask this in Jesus' name.